Welcome to Brain Event. We are delighted to be rejoined by Lionel Schreiber. We had a wonderful conversation about her latest work of fiction, Should We Stay or Should We Go? And we're going to be talking about a collection of essays that she's written called Abominations. Lionel, would you like to start with a real-life case? Well, one of the more controversial positions that a short piece takes in the collection is addressing the issue of monuments, because if you grew up in a place as I did, which was Raleigh, North Carolina, you're surrounded by all these Civil War monuments, which are tributes to Southern generals and fallen Southern soldiers. And of course, that's the wrong side of the war. So I took what some people would find the perverse position that there's something very interesting about these monuments. They, They are distinctive. They cut across the kind of Burger King uniformity that most of the United States is suffering. They're better crafted than anything that would be put up in public today. They're not all celebrity. Some of them are quite mournful, as they should be. Most of all, though, I also observed the fact that most people utterly ignore them. The only time that I've really paid attention to the monuments I grew up around in Raleigh was when I wrote the column. And I had to look up pictures of things that I saw around the Capitol for years and years. But I'd never read the inscriptions, and I didn't know what they were for. They were just kind of objects. They're a form of street furniture. And the truth is, most of us don't ever look at these things, do not have passionate reactions to them, regard them as having nothing to do with us. And I think that there's an artifice to this debate. I think the offense being taken at what would seem to be a defense of slavery is trumped up. It is opposed. Because in truth, nobody has any reaction to these things. And if we can look at them differently, instead of being an active celebration of all these people in the present, more as a remnant of the past, what people celebrated when they were put up. Therefore, they are historical artifacts, but they don't necessarily mean in the present what they did in the past. So, I mean, I have some sympathy, obviously, with the Northerners, especially, who find it befuddling that the South still has tributes to a war that it lost and should have lost. Why are they still here? Uh, But it takes a lot of work and money to take them away. It raises the possibility of, you know, what, what goes in their place, what happens to them. And I think that in terms of the general atmosphere and distinctiveness of the South, that would be a net loss. Now, I recognize that's a minority position, but I thought it was worth putting. It's interesting because it kind of weighs two sets of values against each other. So on the one hand, you've got the value of history and an authentic portrayal of what happened and not sort of scrubbing the history in a region and respecting, maybe not tradition, but at least acknowledging what has happened versus catering for certain kinds of symbols being removed. We want a certain narrative to be portrayed that these kinds of symbols are unacceptable. And how do we really evaluate those two value systems? Because maybe the pushback against you will be, well, 
when those symbols are present, perhaps most people don't react to it, but those who protest clearly do. So they clearly take offense. Maybe they're not in the majority, but they are a subset of people. I want to raise a sort of a counter example. So imagine instead of these civil war monuments, you've got monuments of Hitler. And again, suppose most people walk by, they don't pay any attention. They don't even realize it is Hitler, but they are, let's just say they are of Hitler. And if they knew what those monuments were really about, they'd be quite, quite taken aback, perhaps offended. Then should those monuments be removed when we do that weighing up an authentic portrayal of history versus sort of social justice, which side should win? That's the extreme example. And that makes it a good test. Uh, I could even see preserving the odd tribute to Hitler as a noticing of what happened. I am sympathetic with the uh, recontextualization campaign. I'm fine with that. Go ahead, rewrite what's underneath and make it clear why this has been preserved, perhaps as a warning to the future. I think that the left is a little wrong-headed on this point in that the drive across the board, not just in terms of statuary, is toward erasure. And that is not even in the interest of the left-wing perspective. We're supposed to be doing all this remembering of the terrible things we've done in the past. Well, how is erasure in the interest of that remembering? It seems like there's a worrying precedent that can be set once we start to remove painful objects from our world. As you said, there's the erasure, so we'll forget about our past, and there's always the concern that we'll repeat the mistakes of the past. The other concern is that it doesn't just stop at things like monuments, that there might be large-scale works of art which people find offensive and intolerable. It might be that when people walk through the Library of Congress, that they don't feel any sort of strong revulsion one way or the other about the lines of books that they see. But if you tell them about specific words that are inside some of those books, they might be very upset about it and say, no, these books shouldn't be given the stature of being put into the Library of Congress. They use bad words and they should be removed so we can protect future generations. I mean, think about the children. And I'd imagine that as a writer, that prospect seems terrifying and incredibly wrongheaded. Indeed. And this purification that we seem to be requiring of previous work, whether it's written or a painting that represents something that makes us uncomfortable. It's an act of, of destruction, the destruction of history. It's a misrepresentation of the past. And I object to that kind of purification on an artistic level and on an aesthetic level. I want to know how things were created at that time. It doesn't mean that you necessarily use the words in them that you now find objectionable. Nobody's forcing you to do that. But it's in our interest to preserve the past as it occurred. You cannot rewrite history, but you can obscure it. Do you think intent matters? So the intent behind uh, the sculptor of the monument or the writer of a book I think the position these days among the left is if a novel or a piece of art portrays a certain idea that is objectionable, then it's irrelevant what the intent of the author of that work intended. We must scrub that piece of work because it's got just the mere mention of the idea or the word is going to harm people who view it or read it. 
a different sort of position would be, well, look at the intent of the author. If the intent was not to necessarily uphold that idea, but just portray it, maybe even criticize it, then we should be more permissible. And then the more extreme version is regardless of intent, we need a faithful representation of the past. Which of those sort of approaches do you think is the right one? Probably the latter. I take your point about intent. A good example is Mark Twain, who is being canceled by the left wing in the U.S., taken out of public libraries and taken off of reading lists of curricula. But Mark Twain was, in our current terms, an anti-racist, so that his characters use the N-word to illustrate the fact that they're bigoted. So that's where intent comes in. Now, my larger viewpoint is that I don't care about any of this. I mean, I'm not big on censorship, and I don't believe in this modern notion of harm. You use that word. It's, it's all over the place. I think this is fake harm. This is rubbish. It's all about posturing. It is a pose of injury rather than real injury. It is weaponized injury. And I just want to call these people's bluff. I'm sorry, but they're not hurt. I, let's go back to the days where if you don't want to read something, you don't read it. Or if you don't like a painting, you don't go look at it. Nobody's forcing you to consume these cultural artifacts. It's a big world out there. Words don't bite. And I don't believe that we're talking about any kind of real injury. You've described yourself as a libertarian, the idea that one of the principles that matters most is that people are free. They should be free to swing their fists to the edge of someone else's nose and no further. The idea that you should be the author of your own life, free from state interference and free from the interference of others. But you also say that as a libertarian, it's quite lonely out there. And when you're trying to pick who you should be voting for, it's difficult that Democrats might share your views on social issues. They're going to be in favor of things like gay marriage and of letting people be the author of their social lives to an extent. It's not so clear that the modern Democratic Party does care so much about social liberty. But if you care about economic freedom, the Democrats certainly aren't your friend. They're going to tax you into oblivion, whereas Republicans take the view that the state should have less of your money and that it should be more in your pockets. So you wind up in this situation where you're always having to pick between the lesser of two evils in any election. But you also say that you've been a lifelong Democrat voter. So I wonder what made you hold your nose in the one direction, not the other? Oh, the Republicans. <laughs> this, that's really easy to answer. Uh, as I've become regarded as, anyway, more conservative, the Republicans keep steadily moving out of my reach. That is, every time I would concede the point in their direction, especially in economics, they get a little crazier. And I can't vote for that. They've traditionally been the party of the evangelicals. They haven't really believed in the division of church and state, to which I'm most attached, which is a natural libertarian position. And lately, there's the Trump problem. You know, I can't stand the guy. And uh, I mean, I'm not prone to hysteria in general and not inclined to interpret him as necessarily a threat to democracy. But I don't want him to be president. So, you know, 
I am absolutely in dread of 2024. I have a hard time imagining a combination of opponents that's likely and that I would respond to with anything but paralysis. It still looks as if Trump is going to end up the Republican nominee. And um, I don't want Biden back in office, much less do I want Kamala Harris in office. She's a complete moron. And most of the people who are vying for that slot are wokey, hard left crazies and totally anti-liberty, not just anti-libertarian, anti-liberty, very authoritarian. So I'm, I'm anxious on that point. That situation that I see coming is a vivid illustration of what the essay you're referring to is about. And I am not the only one in the United States, and in fact, I would say throughout the Western world, who's in the same position, because I want people to love whomever they want, marry whomever they want. I'm pro-choice, but I would like as small a state as possible. I would like as low tax rates as possible. I would like to see some fiscal responsibility. I am not a big believer in the welfare state. I think it plays to human weakness. Oh, I'm not big on mass immigration, which is one, I would say that's a little bit of a departure in my libertarian outlook, but we'll get to that. But that, that, it just means there's nobody for me to vote for. There's nobody for me to vote for in the U.S. I'm speaking to you from London. There's nobody for me to vote for here either. So I'd like to discuss immigration, especially in light of your views on destruction of the past and culture. So do you feel mass immigration is a threat to a given country's culture? Of course it is. And just on mass immigration, I can't possibly be anti-immigration because I am an immigrant. I don't mean just because my forebearers were German and came to the United States. I am a first-generation immigrant in the UK. So obviously, I believe in the exchange of ideas and experiences and I think that regularized, modest levels of immigration, especially at higher skill levels, are terrific for all societies. But mass immigration is another matter. And when people from elsewhere come in sufficient quantity, they have a kind of cultural quorum and they don't need to assimilate because all their shopkeepers speak their language and stock their products. There are whole cities in the UK that are mostly Muslim, mostly Pakistani. I wouldn't go so far as to say, oh, they're not British. They are British, uh, but they do not partake of the same culture. And what you get with mass immigration is an atomization of the social fabric. And I don't think that's ideal. And I have tended to throw my political weight behind the defense of the native born, partly because nobody is sticking up for them. The immigrant story is on a narrative level, intrinsically appealing. It plays to all the qualities that Westerners, in fact, usually admire, ambition, a willingness to make sacrifices for a long-term goal. It's a naturally questing 
circumstance. And furthermore, most of these people are at a disadvantage. And we have an underdog mentality in the West. We always sympathize with the weaker party that has to make more of an effort. And we often sympathize with the party who is poorer, as is often the case with immigrants. So the narrative deck is stacked in favor of the immigrant. And the truth is that in real life, the story of most immigrants is highly sympathetic. But that means that because the narrative deck is stacked, it's very hard for people who were born in a country to stick up for themselves because they're the ones who are privileged. They're the ones who are advantaged. They have a home already. They are comparatively well off, even if in the context of their own society, they may not be. And they're told relentlessly in the media that if they're uncomfortable, then they're racist. So a lot of people just feel they have no right to be disgruntled or even faintly perturbed. What's a little perverse about this is that if you look around the world, it is a not a Western trait, not a white race trait, but a human trait that if you have a group of people in the majority in a given defined territory, that is, let's go ahead and use the word invaded because that's the way it feels but beyond a certain arithmetic point. It is invaded by a huge number of people from somewhere else. They don't like it, right? And this has nothing to do with race, not necessarily. In Nigeria, I think it was around 1982. I mean, that may be incorrect, but in that area, they threw out huge numbers of Ghanaians and the locals cheered. This was greatly celebrated. Now, both of those populations are black, but there's a lot of resentment in South Africa, as I understand it, of immigrants from Zimbabwe in Kenya. They don't especially appreciate all those Somalis. In Colombia, there's a lot of resentment of Venezuelans coming in in huge numbers. And hilariously, as far as I'm concerned, Mexicans are most resentful of wealthy white American retirees who are occupying their attractive coasts. It's a cultural invasion. They speak English all the time. They're driving up the property prices. They don't belong there. They should go home. <laughs> it's just, and they don't get the irony, but I do. So if this is a natural human impulse, it's like, okay, very nice. I met some interesting people from somewhere else. I never met someone from there before. We had a great conversation. They served me a delicious meal of a sort that I've never had before. This is great. And they told me some ideas I'd never heard. Well, that's one thing, but it's quite another when you, see, you basically notice that nobody in your neighborhood is speaking your language anymore and you grow up there. It's a little unsettling. It's a little unnerving. It's like, what happened? And nobody asked me. And that's really what's happening in the West is the West is being anthropologically unnatural because we are not made that way. Human beings are highly territorial and highly political. They think in groups. And I'm sorry, it would be nice if we didn't, 
would be nice if we all just thought of ourselves as one big human family, but we don't, and we don't anywhere on earth. But to expect Westerners and white Westerners in particular to constantly celebrate their own diminution in their own territory isn't fair. So I think you're right to point out that immigration involves trade-offs, that there are going to be certain things that you're going to benefit from, but there are going to be certain costs in a society. It seems like there's different ways in which you can have a norm around new immigrants. So the one would be the melting pot strategy. So in Israel, for example, you had people flooding into a country that's very small from all parts of the world. You had people from North Africa, from Eastern Europe, from Ethiopia. And the idea was that you would shed your prior identity, that you would no longer be a Hungarian or be Spanish. You would be Israeli. You would lose your prior language. Yiddish books were destroyed by the state because they said that's how much of a melting must go on so we can have this new identity. And if you ask modern Israelis, where are you from? They immediately say Israel. They find it a sort of strange question that you would want to know one generation back. You could have a country like South Africa, let's say in the 90s, where there was this notion of a rainbow nation, that instead of melting everyone together into one new identity, that you would have this different kinds of pockets of communities, that you would maintain your cultural identity, that if you had Dutch heritage or if you were Zulu or Koza, that would remain. It does seem like you get different costs in these different trade-offs. So, as you mentioned, South Africa has these waves of xenophobic violence. People have been burnt alive because they're from other parts of Africa, that you will have these bubbling tensions. You also mentioned that there's a conflict with what libertarians ought to believe on immigration. Because on the one hand, there's a sense of saying you should be free to lead the life of your choosing. And you can imagine someone who says, well, I want to move to a better place. I want to live in this country where I've got more chance for prosperity. On what basis do we limit that person's freedom? The one argument seems to be, well, we want to kind of keep our culture intact and you're going to have different cultural norms and speak a different language and that's going to interfere with our norms. That sort of line seems like a lower kind of harm. Earlier we talked about how there are certain kinds of harms that we think are important, physical harms, economic harms. I shouldn't steal from you, but I should be free to compete with you, open up a shop next door to you and drive you out of business because I sell a better product. That's a different kind of harm. So I wonder how you reconcile these things. What do you think the best kind of trade-off is? As you mentioned, mass migration is different from individuals coming across, but sometimes mass migration might be necessary. So especially when you have a war in a region and people are driven out, my grandparents fled Nazi Germany to South Africa to escape the Holocaust. You could have people who were escaping civil war in Syria, that if they didn't leave, they weren't let in somewhere, that they would be annihilated. It needs mass migration because en masse people are affected by some devastating threat. So how do we square the circle? Well, first off, you have to remember that the core belief of libertarianism, to which I'm not attached as a program, it's not a little group I belong to, it's just the best word I can come up with as the rubric that I tend to adhere to, if not that strictly. The core belief is that you should be able to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't impinge on the rights of other people. Now, that immigration paradigm, people coming in from somewhere else, often illegally, in large numbers, with usually nothing, is impinging on the rights of others considerably. All these people need housing, health care, education for their children. That's expensive. The 
immigrants are a considerable drag on the economy of the host country, at least to begin with. And I know there's a lot of conflict on the economics of it, but you can certainly put together a case that the taxes that an impoverished immigrant coming into the U.S. pays will not cover the real social costs of that person's life. And they're taking up space. They are taking up cultural space. They are having an effect on on the incoming country, which is not purely positive. So you can't say that this is just one person using their liberty without having any impingement on the rights of others. There's considerable impingement. And that's why it's perverse to say that the people who live in a country have no right to defend their borders. It is true that in a kind of big picture moral universe, you're dealing with a large population of people who might be better off in this new place. So if you let go of your attachment to the interests of the people who live there, you might say, well, maybe that's a greater moral good that these people get to have nicer lives. Well, first off, I do believe that the nation state without borders doesn't exist. If you don't have borders, you just bleed into everywhere. There is no nation state. So if you do believe in the nation state, and everyone doesn't, but I guess I do because I think it's probably the most functional unit of maximum social groups. Um, if you believe in nation states, then you believe in borders, but you also have to be willing to privilege the interests of the people who live there as over against the people who don't. And that is definitional. And if you don't do that either, then again, you don't have a country. A country has to function in order to primarily protect the interests of its people. And there has to be a definable people. Otherwise, no country. So I am genuinely sympathetic with immigrants who see that they might be better off in the UK or in the US. But it is the first responsibility of the governments in both those countries to protect the interests of the people who live there and to say, look, I know you want to live here. And we're very sympathetic with the fact we think that you are as full of humanity as the people who already live here. But we have calculated that it is not in our interest to let in beyond a certain number of people. And you're far back in the queue and you're going to have to sort yourself out somewhere else. That's having a functional immigration system, which, by the way, neither country has. And I just I think that's morally defensible. I certainly think it's politically defensible. You've talked about the importance of the state protecting its citizens from outside forces. So from immigration, for example, the state, a lot of people also believe has obligations to protect its citizens within its society, specifically by distributing some of the resources and wealth from certain members of the society to other members of that society. And the common mechanism used is tax in the democratic world. So people with more are taxed higher so that people with less get handouts. 
how do you feel about text as a way of distribution within a society? I think it's a crude mechanism. I think it wastes huge amounts of money and effort in the process of redistribution. It is not as happy a solution to the inequality that people object to as a system that just means that people make a little more money. In an essay that I believe is probably the most incendiary in the collection, I testified to what it felt like in my single windfall year, which I had worked my whole life for, to have over half of it taken away. And I was urging people who perhaps don't make all that much money to at least push themselves to understand how that feels. Feel that tax systems do not sufficiently recognize the emotional aspect of taxation because the sensation of having the fruits of your labors confiscated on such a scale creates enormous resentment. And yet at the same time, in the same way that the native-born are not allowed to express any resentment of immigration, anyone who makes any money is not allowed to express that resentment in public. It's like completely uncool because you're so lucky you made some money. So you're not supposed to complain that you don't get to keep it. And I'm frankly very sympathetic with the emotional consequences of the kind of flat tax they use in a country like Estonia. It's, it's 20%. Now, that's a substantial whack, but it's, it's emotionally manageable. And it also feels very different when everyone else is also paying 20%. We just take for granted this progressive tax system. But the truth is, it's not an expression of fairness. It's an expression of unfairness. And why does it make sense that because you have been successful, that you pay at least half of your entire income to the state, whereas if you make less, it may be 10% or nothing. And so you're creating a lot of unexpressed resentment as well as motivation to cheat, to get around the system, because the system doesn't feel fair. That's the sensation is this is not fair. The other thing I don't like about the progressive tax system and our redistributive intentions behind taxes is that we've created a system in both the UK and the US that basically half the country doesn't pay any income taxes and the other half carries the country. That is, you've got people who have a completely different relationship to government so that the bottom half of the population looks to government to give them stuff and is always resentful because they don't get given enough. And then the top half is resentful that they're taken from and they get nothing because that's also part of the setup is that when you contribute to this, the system prevents you from drawing on the system. And how does this work? I mean, how emotionally, I mean, I'm a novelist, so I, as well as a person, and I care about feeling. I think feeling is how we feel. That's our lives. And 
the feeling is of really two different countries. And the lower half never gets enough, always thinks the upper half is getting away with murder and not paying any taxes, which of course, I mean, how would that work? They're not paying any taxes. If the upper half weren't paying any taxes, there would be no taxes. And also there's a kind of failure to understand the other half on both people's account. I think that people who are better off probably don't completely understand how crap it is when you can't keep body and soul together, can't cover the expenses of your children. Especially when you feel you're paying through the nose that you have been robbed. I think that creates a sympathy deficit because you have more than paid for these people and you don't have to worry about them. And then on the bottom half, there are all these myths that the rich people aren't really paying taxes and that, oh, and they're living these wonderful lives, which of course are not necessarily wonderful. They have all the same kinds of problems as everybody. I mean, the system is very polarizing and I would happily get on board with a 20% flat tax. One, this is the nature of flat taxes. They're very hard to escape, right? So I would love to see the tax codes in both the US and the UK shrink down to like 100 pages. I mean, this will never happen because what is the UK tax code? Something like 40 times the length of the King James Bible or something. So I am not happy where we ended up and taxes. The complexity is partly a result of people who are being soaked, appealing to the legislators with whom they have a lot of influence and getting exceptions written into the rules. And that happens over and over again. And the layers of complexity get more and more absurd. Well, in South Africa, we can only dream of a day when half the citizens pay income tax. I think at the moment it's less than 10%. But when you have that great level of disparity in terms of who pays and who receives, you can imagine how deep the conflict runs. Something yeah. else that you point out as well is that once we start to think that you get a right to certain things, because you have a taxation system, like a right to public education or to healthcare, then we can start making claims like the immigrants are affecting our rights because they're coming and getting free schooling and free hospitals and there's an actual rights invasion. If you don't have social safety net, if you have a society where the state really does have a minimal role, then it's not clear that immigrants are taking away from anyone because it's not seen as, well, I've paid for this stuff and you're getting it. So it might simmer down tensions. I wonder about something else. So one of the other kinds of methods that's seen as important to redress past wrongs are things like race-based affirmative action or gender-based affirmative action. And you could do this in a number of ways. So the one might be governments will aim to have a certain amount of representativity. In South Africa, the African National Congress says that they want half of their public representatives to be women. In publishing, you've written about how there have been moves by, I think it's Penguin Random House, to ensure that the staff members there represent the demographics of America. This idea that you could be a token for a type, that if you've got 2,000 people that work at the publishing house, well, then you need to make sure that two of them are trans, 40 of them are gay, only a certain number of them are white Christian men. And then the idea is that you could speak on behalf of that group because now you are a race representative or a genital representative. I wonder how you feel about such a system. Well, you've read my book, so I think affirmative action first got started when I was about 16 years old, and I didn't like the sound of it even when I was a teenager. I think the 50 years since have 
demonstrated that it's been a disaster. And unfortunately, especially in the post-George Floyd era, there are calls for even more drastic affirmative action in the States, and the UK is increasingly inclined to adapt to what are de facto racial quotas as well. And I don't think such quotas are in anyone's interest. They're certainly not in the interest of a publishing company, which has to remember that its main job is not to reflect the demographics of the country, but to produce books that people want to buy. And one of my major problems with affirmative action is that it exacerbates racism rather than ameliorating it, because the assumption goes that, oh, here's this book written by a black author. Oh, I know why that was published it's not necessarily any good. Well, that's just terrible. If that were your first book that you had labored on and poured your heart into, do you want people walking around behind your back assuming the only reason that you got it published was that you were black? I mean, that's just awful. And this is the problem with it across the board. And it's very undermining of its beneficiaries. By the way, it is significant that something like 60% of blacks in the United States do not like affirmative action. And for good reason. It's done them enormous reputational harm and it's undermining of their own self-confidence. Why did I get into that school? Right? Was it because my essay was so great? Maybe not. Nobody wants to feel that way. I don't think that we have seen this great social transformation as a result of affirmative action, that if that were the case, then we wouldn't need it anymore. In fact, that's one of my other problems with affirmative action, is that once you bring it in, you never get rid of it. In South Africa, that question that you ask has been not ruled illegal, but certainly unethical to ask. So there was a head of a company who asked whether a particular employee had been hired because of their race or because of their skill. And he genuinely didn't know the answer. He was asking the question. And in virtue of being asked the question, he was dismissed from the company. So just the mere asking of the question is sort of an unspoken, unutterable in South Africa, which is bizarre because you're implementing a system that implicitly (laughs) decides the question. So yeah, it, it definitely involves contradiction. The response by the affirmative action proponent is that perhaps a new baseline is set. So in the past, the claim is that the baseline was that the old boys club, white males were promoted within companies and within structures. And now because of affirmative action, because of this push for social justice, a reversal in the norm has happened and we are biasing in favor of black applicants. And that is a good thing. Even if we then later remove the legal norms around it, we retain a change in the culture, which is a positive thing. That's the pushback. I know, but I do not believe in solving discrimination with more discrimination. If you believe that discrimination on the basis of skin color is wrong, then you don't believe in positive discrimination either. I don't think there's any such thing as positive discrimination, which is what they call it in the UK. Now, I would not want to make pronouncements about a country that I know little, but which I have recently visited. And it is my impression that aggressive affirmative action is starting to do considerable damage to South Africa 
because people are not being hired for their abilities. And when you universally disregard talent, education, capacity, the ability to do a job properly, your systems are going to start breaking down. And I think that's what's happening. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that was my impression when I went there in May. Yeah, what's interesting about the South African case is that it's started off as a state-led project, which was this idea that you would wipe out the prior class of civil servants who had benefited from apartheid and uplift the black population that had been oppressed. And there are knock-on effects, of course. In other words, if the person who winds up having to provide water services or healthcare services or build the roads doesn't have the same qualifications, it'll have knock-on effects for people who are the poorest of the poor who are reliant on those things. But what's interesting is that the private sector has been cajoled into having strong race-based affirmative action policies, so much so that our biggest pharmacy chain, Discam, sent out a memo saying that they would have a moratorium on hiring white staff, that in order to meet the racial quotas that the government has set, that they could no longer hire white people and they didn't want to face a 10% turnover fine. So there's something kind of sickening about all this. A nation like South Africa is founded on the value of non-racialism. This idea that you should be judged on the content of your character, not the color of your skin. And it seems like a principle that's been abandoned here, but abroad as well. There's something else that you write about in this collection of essays, which is what makes you, what are the important features of who you are? And you take the view that the things that are least interesting about you are things like your race or your sex. You sort of don't think of yourself primarily as a woman. That's not the first idea that pops into your head when you think about who Lionel is. And I wonder what your views are on this sort of obsession we've had with gender in the last couple of years. You make mention of Facebook used to having a drop-down menu of 71 different genders that you could pick. This was insufficient, so now it's a write-in list. You sort of see these things not just on Facebook, but on many different application forms. But there's a sense in which you yourself have changed your name that you are uncomfortable being called Margaret, you've picked the name Lionel when you were 15, that you wanted to match your inner and your outer identity, are people who have these sort of other ways of seeing themselves, should they be entitled to call themselves non-binary, change their gender norms or change their sex through an operation so they can feel like they live in a world which respects them, and how complicit should other people be in their changes? Well, anyone is perfectly welcome to call themselves non-binary and I am equally within my rights to roll my eyes right because I don't think there's any such thing we can agree to disagree I am uncomfortable with the direction of travel culturally from my perspective we're going backwards I grew up during the original women's liberation movement which I think was helpful in encouraging my ambition professionally. It's true I changed my name to Lionel. I think there was an element there of a release from what we now call gender norms. And I was a bit of a tomboy when I was a kid. I grew up between two brothers and was much more prone to play with cars and trucks and train wrecks than I was to play with doll babies. I hated doll babies. Theoretically, my parents, if it were today, would have looked at that and wondered whether I was actually secretly a boy. 
I am unhappy with the fact that we are nailing down sexual stereotypes. When I was growing up, we were trying to move away from them. And a lot of that for me was not so much clinging to being female as being released from it. And I definitely acknowledge that the previous generation in particular did a lot of the heavy lifting that enabled me to not worry that much about feminism. I accepted the label of being a feminist because I didn't know what else you'd call someone who thinks that men and women are basically both people with some subtle differences, but I prefer to think of us all as individuals. I would rather not primarily relate to you as a man, and I would rather you not primarily relate to me as a woman. I I have no problem acknowledging that I assume you were born male, and I have always accepted that I was born female, but I would like to make those ordinary biological facts less important and less tied to a set of traits that we associate with both those sexes. There's a certain reality to the stereotypes, but I'm sure you've seen the the bell curve on these traits and they hugely intersect, hugely. So in the middle of that intersection are somewhat feminine men, not necessarily gay, but perhaps more sensitive or more nurturing, and lots of more masculine women who may be more aggressive, more competitive, not especially nurturing. I'm not. And that's the world I want to live in. So that, yes, okay, we know that there are some general differences that that in, in a group sense probably have something to them, but that's not going to tell you about an individual when you encounter them and not going to allow you to predict who they are and what they're like. And a lot of what's going on for me is with this whole identity politics movement, and this includes the whole trans alphabet people, I reject their notion of identity. I think across my life, I've gradually come to a fairly certain sense of who I am. I hope that project is never finished because I think that you change as you get older. I try to keep learning, keep developing, meeting new people. So I hope I don't remain exactly the same person, but I feel comfortable in my own skin. And my notion of having an identity doesn't have to do with membership of groups into which I was born without any choice. My identity is tied up with the things that I have chosen. I decided to become a writer when I was seven. I had a a softy weakness for folk music when I was 12 or 13. I have developed an appreciation for jazz because I married a jazz drummer 20 years ago. A sense of humor is important to me. I liked I I liked breaking bank. <laughs> there are many little things having to do with my taste, my experience, where I have lived. I have become partially British, not fully British. Obviously, I still have a strong American accent, but that has turned me into a slightly hybrid nationality because you know I've been in Britain for the 
35 years. So that's an important part of my identity. That's what I experience as identity. My tastes, my experiences, my inclinations, my beliefs, all subject to to change and refinement. And something that I have made is not, by the way, something I have discovered. It is something I have made. And so I reject identity on multiple counts in terms of this movement's understanding of what makes a person who they are. I don't fight the categories I was born into. I know I was American. There are a lot of Americans who are uncomfortable with being American, and I went through a phase of that too. And I think that part of the development of my identity was accepting, okay, I'm American. That's a fact. And that doesn't mean that I am responsible for everything that the country ever did, even before I was born. I just live with that. Everyone has their little burdens that they were born with. But I regard identity as something that you develop, that you can influence, that is a creation. And it is a creation that you inhabit. But it does, it is not primarily made of group identity. And well, how appalling would it be if I'd identified mostly as a white person? I mean, it's interesting how obnoxious that is. Whereas if you're any other race and you say that this is one of the most important things to you, that's great. We celebrate that. I think the whole thing is rubbish. And that also extends to sex. I'm much more comfortable now with the word sex because gender has been corrupted. It has been politicized. So, yep, I was born female. I can live with it. It has disadvantages. I have found it very physically inconvenient. But there are problems with being male too. I can tell. That that business of losing all your hair, it's rubbish. I, I really would be able to stick that. So I'd rather deal with everyone on, as individuals, as made identities, as people who have a sense of themselves as they go through life more and more. And I hope it's not primarily to do with their race or their disability or their, or their sex, but having to do with their musical tastes and what they've decided to do with their lives and what they think is important. I think someone listening to each of your positions on each of these topics would find them quite plausible. I know I do. An objector might say that there's a tension between two of your views. So specifically the view on immigration and this position that you've just given. So the view on immigration is that your country of origin matters very much to who you are. And this view is that your group identity isn't that important. Sure, there's facts of the matter. You were born American, but it shouldn't be the core of who you are. Given that, and given that immigration can come with a massive upliftment in people's lives, I mean, sure, it can also have negative consequences, and there's debate on the data for this. But given that group identity is not that important, why is national identity so important in your discussion of immigration? Well, I've talked about changing, right? And certainly... Earlier in my life, I've been much more focused on being an individual on, and wanting others around me to be just individuals rather than mem members of groups. As I've got older, and especially as this movement has taken on some of the 
antagonisms of my youth. So they're not, they're especially rebellious anymore. I have become more defensive of the legacy of Western civilization and more conscious that I am a member of this enormous group. And that's something that I willingly accept. I feel I have personally benefited from the fruits of that civilization. And I'm proud of them. And I don't mean in that sense of pride as I take credit. I don't take any credit. No credit. I've tried to make my own contribution. It's very tiny. And my books are only facilitated by people who came before me, who invented the whole idea of the novel, who can, who helped to form the English language. Many of the concepts that I'm struggling with in my books, I didn't invent those. And my, my life has been richer for the, the literature especially that came before me, as well as the music and the painting and the everything and the architecture. I'm very grateful and I am not comfortable with the shaming of that civilization. We don't need to go on and on about some hedge about how, yes, there were bad things in colonialism and slavery and everything. I mean, yeah, sure. And there's never been a human civilization that didn't do atrocious things. But why focus on them? I mean, especially if they're over. I feel that Westerners are being raised now, children are being raised now to be ashamed of, of their background, of their heritage. And I think that's a pity and it is ungrateful. It is drastically ungrateful. And I also think it's born of a certain embarrassment because the truth is that Western civilization has massively contributed to the world we live in today. And I mean the good things about it, the level of medical care we can provide now, scientific discoveries that have enabled us all to carry around a little computer in our back pockets. I won't go on, but I'm very grateful for sewage systems, for example. Western civilization has, has hugely contributed to the advancement of our species and to our individual comfort. And why feel bad about it? I don't. And so I would join the likes of Douglas Murray, who wrote The War in the West, to say enough is enough. It's one thing to look at the past and see it clearly, but it's another to say it's all evil. It's anything but all evil. And I embrace my heritage. And, uh, and I mean that in the broadest possible way, not necessarily my German heritage or my American heritage, but the larger achievements this part of the world and its diaspora are something to defend and take pride in. I want to return to something you mentioned earlier about yourself, which is that you have a good sense of humor and it really comes through in your writing. You've got this wonderful witty way of presenting your ideas or about putting your characters in situations that are very dark, but very funny. And I wonder if you can tell us more about why humor is so important. And if you think it's under threat, do you think it's much harder to be funny nowadays? Because if you're standing up on a stage telling jokes, you might have someone climb up on that stage and give you a punch in the face. And I wonder if it's harder for writers to be funny. 
but nonetheless, that it's an important task. Oh, it's hugely important for me just on a daily basis. I can't get through the day without it. A lot of good humor is at one's own expense. So that's one of, one of its many merits is that it's a way of undermining yourself, literally not taking yourself too seriously. It's also a good way of pointing out things that are obvious, but maybe you're not supposed to say. It's a great oblique way of getting it at truth. I know that stand-up comics are having a terrible time right now because there are all kinds of things they're told they're not supposed to do. And a lot of comedy is, if not at your own expense, at somebody's. And lately, you're not supposed to be mean to anybody except white males. And then, well, then that's kind of intrinsically not funny anymore because humor is usually transgressive in some way. And that's why it appeals to me. I mean, we've used the word libertarian, but most of all, I just, I don't like being bossed around. I don't mean, like being told what to do. I adhere to any number of social norms, like I'm not going to go outside and murder the next door neighbor. But I hate being imposed upon and controlled. I don't like being forced to comply with this, that, and the other thing. And that rebellious streak is also my creative streak. And that's where the books come from. And that's where the essays come from. Same sensibility. It's like, you tell me that, that I can't say that, I'm going to say it. 